welcome to the Literati Cast. I'm Jennifer Loughran. I'm a senior agent at the Andrea Brown Literary Agency. We rep children's books from board books through young adult and everything in between. Twice a month, I have interviews with publishing professionals you might not get to hear from normally to give you an insider's peek into the world of children's book publishing. Today, among other things, we're going to talk about NaNoWriMo. Since you're going to hear this word a lot, I figured before I even start, I'd tell you what the heck NaNoWriMo is, define it, since some of you might not be in the know. It's definitely a weird word to hear over and over again if you don't know what it is. NaNoWriMo is a shortening for National Novel Writing Month. This event happens every November, though of course most writers consider every month a writing month. In November, there's a tradition where participants attempt to knock out a fast draft of at least 50,000 words, usually without pausing to revise or second-guess themselves. It's, as the NaNo website declares, a fun, seat-of-your-pants approach to creative writing, and it can definitely be the start of a great book or the boost you might need to get inspired. What it can't be, though, is the beginning and end of a great book. Just because you get 50,000 words down doesn't mean you should query that hot mess come December 1st. Think of NaNo instead as an adrenaline injection, as a game. Don't beat yourself up about it if you don't meet your daily word count. This is meant to be fun and to shake yourself loose from your own brain shackles. If it isn't fun or it doesn't work for you, by all means, don't do it. Just because a lot of writers on the internet are talking about a thing doesn't mean you have to participate. Now, Jen, you ask, why are you waiting until mid-November to tell us about this anyway? Well, um, truthfully, it's because I did not think of this topic until after November 1st. But also, it's because this is not just about nano in particular. My hope is that the wisdom my guest today will impart will provide not just nano inspo, but also inspiration for the rest of the year as well. Kendra Levin is the Associate Editorial Director of Viking Children's Books, which is a division of Penguin Random House. She is also a life coach for writers, and she's written a book especially for writers called The Hero Is You, Sharpen Your Focus, Conquer Your Demons, and Become the Writer You Were Born to Be. We're going to talk a bit about all of that today. Let me see if I can get Kendra on the line. Hey, Kendra. Hey. So thank you so much for being here. First of all, can you talk to us briefly about your path to becoming a children's book editor? And also, how did your second life as a life coach for writers come about? Sure. And thanks so much for having me. Um, So, yeah, you know, I wasn't somebody that was uh, dreaming of working in publishing. It was something I really stumbled into when I was in college. Um, I got an email out of the blue from an editor at Scholastic uh, who I had never heard of named David Levithan. Um, And he um, was contacting me because uh, a short story that I had written in high school that had won a Scholastic Writing Award uh, was he wanted to include it in an anthology that he was putting together of stuff that had been in the awards over over the past few years. Um, and I happened to just be moving to New York for school and, you know, wound up getting an internship at Scholastic through him. Um, and then uh, he put me working for Joy Peskin, who um, is now at Macmillan, but at the time was uh, an editor at Scholastic. And she just became this completely amazing mentor to me and introduced me to this whole world of editing children's books, which I just, I really, it had never occurred to me that that was a job. Um and here I am. <laughs> so. 
But then you have a second hat. Yes. And so then um, I became a life coach a few years later uh, when I was an assistant at Penguin, uh, where I still work. Um, And, um, you know, I was was an assistant, so I did a lot of administrative stuff and I was feeling a, a little bit not super fulfilled in my job and sort of thinking, is this all there is to life? And um, I noticed that I was getting very, very involved in my friend's problems. Like whenever they had something going on, I would be like, I'll drop everything, you know, <laughs> and, and I kind of would get excited. And I felt like, well, that doesn't seem healthy. Uh, maybe I need to look at that. And around the same time, I was at a party and um, just chatting with this woman I met. And she said, oh, you know, what do you do? Oh, I work in publishing. What about you? She said, oh, I empower women. Oh. And I was like, damn, <laughs> that's so cool. I want to be able to say something like that. Um, and it turned out she was a life coach, which was something I really hadn't even heard of at the time. Uh, but I found out more about it through her. I ended up deciding to do a training program. I did a, a 10-month-long certificate program. Um, and, you know, I wasn't sure if it was something I would just do on the side or if I wanted to kind of leave publishing and make that my full-time career. But right around the time that I um, graduated from my program, the economy tanked. So I thought, well, let me stick with my job. <laughs> um, and so it's become this sort of other thing that I do on the side that, that I get a lot of fulfillment out of and, and really, really enjoy doing. So we were at a conference together last weekend. And you spoke a bit on topics you cover in your book, The Hero Is You. So one thing you dissect in your book is the hero's journey. Can you give us a very quick refresher course on what that journey looks like for those of us who haven't taken a mythology class in a while? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I got really kind of obsessed with the hero's journey about seven years ago. Um, A friend of mine was teaching a class about it and was telling me about her class. And then I was like, let me read everything about this because it was a concept that I was familiar with. And I think like a lot of people who you know, whether you work in storytelling or you just read a lot of stories, have like a vague sense of what it is, but I didn't really know more about it. So it's basically kind of like a model for storytelling. Um, And, you know, a lot of the reading that I did about it was Joseph Campbell, who was this very like preeminent mythology scholar uh, and wrote a lot about the hero's journey and sort of how there are these patterns of storytelling that show up in the really like essential core myths from every culture and all over the world, all different time periods. And it's really just, you know, sort of super quick and dirty version is like your main character, your hero kind of embarks on a quest of some sort with some sort of goal in mind, um, has to contend with lots of different obstacles. Uh, some things go right, some things go wrong. Um, ultimately faces this sort of, the, the big bad or like the boss round or, or like the, <laughs> the ultimate kind of evil um, and comes through that experience wiser uh, and sort of ready to become a mentor to the next hero who is going on their journey. So something that struck me in your talk was the idea of using the hero's journey, not just as a craft tool, but also a process tool and hero being like a metaphor for writers. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, totally. And this is the thing that kind of got me so interested in the hero's journey when I started reading up on it is I sort of realized like, oh, wow, the hero's journey is really 
uh, an apt metaphor for the creative process, really like for any kind of creative artist, but especially um, for writers, just because like, that's, you know, what most interests me. Um, Because I feel like when you embark on a creative process, there are all these parallels with the hero's journey. You kind of start with this stage of, of getting inspired. And that's very much like the part of the hero's journey, which is sort of the, this messenger coming, the herald, you know, to tell you like, Hey, it's, it's time for you to go on this quest. And, um, there's all these other kind of archetypes like that, that pop up, uh, in the hero's journey that are very much like different moments in the creative process, whether it's, uh, when you kind of like get distracted and you get stuck uh, that's very much like a part of the hero's journey or sort of facing the things that are most challenging to you. So, um, and heroes really kind of like demonstrate for us how to be in process, right? Like stories are about process. We see somebody going through a period of their life where things are changing and they're making changes happen. Um, that's what makes a story interesting. So I think there's a lot that you can draw from what heroes go through and watching how how they experience the process of you know whatever the story is that they're in uh, and apply that to your own creative process and kind of how you work and pull tools out of that to um do your work in a in a way that works better for you and that gives you kind of more more balanced life and a happier process one thing you mentioned was that the root word of hero Oh, yeah. So I thought this was really interesting when I was researching that the the Greek root of the word hero means to protect and serve. And I mean, to me, those are two really, really important things for writers and artists to do is you have to protect your work. And part of, you know, being a hero or sort of being an artist means making that space for your work in your life, making time that you carve out, that you protect for creating your work, even if you're not getting paid as if you were getting paid, you know, taking it as seriously as if it were your job. Um, and then serving, you know, for heroes in, uh, myth, they generally, they're not just kind of out for their own interests, right? They're serving some greater cause, whether it's like a value that they really hold dear or a community that they're trying to save, you know, whatever it is, there's, there's some like greater purpose to what they're doing. And I feel like that's really true for writers and artists too, that it's not just about like, Oh, me and my story that I want to tell and getting it out there and getting people to pay attention to me, but kind of what is my deeper purpose with this story? What am I, who do I want to affect and impact with my work? And I think especially for people who write for children, um, that's sort of baked in. Like there's always an impulse among people who make art for kids uh, to be using it as a a way to make the world a better place. So you mentioned the word archetypes. What really are archetypes and how can thinking about them help writers maybe who are doing NaNoWriMo or any other goal-oriented writing project? So archetypes... um, in, in like all the hero's journey stuff that I have read about that comes from Joseph Campbell, he drew a lot of the stuff that he was doing from the psychologist Carl Jung, who kind of first like coined the term of archetype. And an archetype is basically just like a model for a behavior or a person or an idea. It's, it's like kind of a lens 
that you can use to filter experiences to explain them to ourselves sort of. So like in the hero's journey, Campbell talks about these different archetypes that personify sort of universal traits and tendencies in human nature. For example, the mentor is one that pops up a lot in the hero's journey. Um, Of course, we all know what a mentor is. It's just like somebody uh, older and wiser who kind of like gives us advice and guides us along. And, and, um, in the hero's journey, you, in, in stories that follow the hero's journey, you often see that archetype pop up of like Yoda, Dumbledore, whatever, you know, that is like helping the main character kind of get through the different challenges, giving them advice, sometimes giving them gifts, stuff like that. Um, so how those archetypes can be useful to writers. I mean, I think, you know, something I talk about a lot in, in my book, The Hero is You, is um, sort of seeing each of these archetypes as kind of a symbol of a different tool that you can use in your process. So with the mentor, um, something that I talk about is the idea that, yeah, I mean, it's definitely great if you can find a mentor in real life who is a, a person, but also there are a lot of ways you can be your own mentor by kind of always being a student, by always studying, by kind of letting the world be your mentor in a way and um, kind of studying crafts, studying the things that challenge you. Um, And then, yeah, I go through like 10 different archetypes in the book and um, like the trickster, you know, is one, the trickster character, of course, is like um, somebody who is very like wily and uses humor in a story to sort of reveal things about the world that we normally don't see or don't want to see. And so I think it's very important to sort of find your inner trickster and like the sense of play and fun and playfulness um, in your work. So stuff like that. I read a great blog post from you on the NaNoWriMo website that was about this too. So I will link to it in the show notes. Um, Oh, thanks. My own NaNoWriMo confession is that I tried to do it once about 10 years ago, and I ended up literally just putting random words in. Like, she was very, 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 very upset. (laughs) (laughs) And like, using block quotes from Wikipedia and uncontracting all the contractions so that I could make my word count. Right. And I gave up by day four. So to be clear, nano is supposed to be a challenge, but it's also supposed to be fun, right? <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, that that's definitely one way to do it. Yeah, it's <laughs> um, terrible. Don't do it that way. I like it was super satisfying for you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think the reason something like nano exists is um, because it's, it's a great, great accountability um, tool to help people have all this motivation and putting this sort of super intense, very ambitious deadline on. Um, but yeah, I think that you, even when you're doing NaNoWriMo, you kind of, all the other best practices or kind of healthiest practices for life as a writer still apply, right? You just are like dialed up to 11. So how can you sort of um, use the, the psychological tools as well as like the craft tools that you're already using in your writing, but just sort of in a more intense way for that month. Sure. Um, You mentioned a book by Richard Wiseman that included a study of people that had made goals and who succeeded. What remind me, what was that study and what were the results? 
Totally. Yeah. I, I ran across this study when I was researching the book and I really thought it was fascinating. So Richard Wiseman is this um, British psychologist. Um, and I found the study in a book of his called 59 Seconds. Uh, and he, he ran a study that was massive. It tracked 5,000 participants all over the world. Um, half of them for six months and half of them for a year. And the one thing that all these people had in common is they all were trying to achieve a variety of different kinds of goals. Um, and at the end of the studies, he found that only about 10% of people uh, in the study reported that they had succeeded in achieving their goals. Um, and so, you know, of course, what really interested me is, well, what did, what did those people have in common, um, those 500 people? And um, kind of like top line, like the things that they all did were they all made a step-by-step -step plan and then recorded their progress. Um, so rather than just being like, oh, yeah, I really want to like do this thing. I hope that I do it, <laughs> you know, kind of really breaking it down into its component parts. And I, I find this is really helpful for me all the time whenever I'm facing a big task is like, okay, let me, um, as my friend Lila Sales says, let me operationalize it. Um, let me turn it into small tasks. Uh, and then tracking their progress. I also thought that was interesting. I mean, I think it's why people like Fitbit so much. You know, there's some, and I think that's why people like NaNoWriMo too, that there's something really satisfying about at the end of each day being like, okay, I did such and such amount this day. Um, and then the other methods that he mentioned that were effective for people were um, sharing the goal with others. Again, with NaNo, you know, I think that the kind of social aspect of it is really key. And I think anytime you're trying to accomplish a goal, it's nice to um, include somebody else in it um, to have accountability and also because they can encourage you. And, and I think that encouragement is really important as well. So I have some listener questions if you're game to answer them. Sure. So <laughs> one listener writes, I have three novel ideas tumbling around in my brain like fresh laundry. I don't want to waste time writing something that won't sell, but I also don't have an agent I can run these ideas by. How do I decide what to focus on? Uh, yeah, that, that's tough. And I get questions like that a lot, actually, from um, coaching clients, particularly, and also just from people I meet at conferences. Because, um, yeah, I mean, of course, you're excited about a lot of different ideas, and it's hard to know what to focus on. I mean, the first thing I would say is, whatever you focus on right now, it doesn't mean that you're throwing away the other ideas, you know, like, life, hopefully is long, hopefully, you will have time to write all of them eventually. Um, and you know, one of the things that's very um, fortunate for writers is it's not like being a ballet dancer or a gymnast or something, you know, you kind of just get better as you get older, there isn't like a time limit on your career. So, uh, so hopefully, you will ultimately have time to write all of them. But as far as deciding what to focus on first, I mean, I think I, I really like hear the impulse to um, or like the concern about not wanting to write something that won't sell and kind of the market driven aspect of it. And at the same time, like by the time you finish the draft, who knows what's going to be happening in the market and who knows what people are going to be looking for. It's, it's an important thing to have an awareness about. You don't want to be sitting here being like, Oh, I have a great idea for like a book about a, boy who goes to a wizard boarding school or whatever, you know, but, um, 
But at the same time, I don't think that it should be the deciding factor to dictate your decisions about what to work on. To me, the most important deciding factor on that is just your gut, you know, and what really excites you, what's really inspiring you, what you're going to most enjoy working on first, I think is um, where to go first. Because inevitably the time will come when you're sick of working on this particular project and then it'll be a great time to turn to one of these other ones for a break. But in the meantime, your passion is going to drive you a lot farther um, when it's like at its most fired up. Plus, you will potentially have to be with this book for the rest of your life. Read it how many hundreds of times. So, you know, make sure that you really want to do that. Like, is it an idea that you can read a hundred times? Yes. Yeah, that's a really good point. So uh, another question. At a conference, I had a first pages read. An acquisitions editor loved the sample. We met. I told them about the book. We got along like gangbusters. They followed up by email and asked me a couple times since when they can read the full. The thing is, my manuscript is complete, but I know it isn't perfect. Line edit wise. Should I delay sending it and pay for a copy editor to help or send it in as is? Basically, how do you decide when to press send? That's really tricky. And I mean, especially when when somebody has expressed interest like that, which kudos, by the way, like that's really exciting for that person. And that's really great that there's an editor who's excited about their work. And I totally get that sense of like, oh, I don't want to miss the moment. I don't want to, you know, they could quit. They could get fired. They could, you know, I want to like get in there. Um and, and you don't want them to kind of forget about you. Although I will say as an editor that if I read something that's great, I don't forget about the person. Um, and I've had people pop back up years later because I've worked at the same place for a pretty long time. Um, many, many, many years later. And I still remembered their name and I remembered why I liked their work and I was still interested. So, but that being said, um, I think, you know, I certainly see stuff... Um, even from agents, from some agents, uh, that isn't perfect line edit wise. Uh, and I, what I can't know, what I can't answer for this person is like, when you say it's not perfect line edit wise, do you mean there's like, uh, it's riddled with mistakes because you, you know, maybe just like have, struggle a little bit with, um, grammar or spelling or whatever, or do you mean like, you are a perfectionist and there might be like five things wrong throughout, but you aren't sure where they are and, you know, like needs to be perfect, perfect, perfect. Um, you know, I think that only you know how good enough is good enough that you feel like you can send it out confidently and knowing that if in the end that editor does say, you know what, it's not for me, you will be able to, feel like, well, I put my best foot forward rather than feeling like, oh no, I should have like gotten a copy edited or I should have done one more line edit. And I mean, the last thing I would say on that is, um, and this is very like, take this with a grain of salt. I'm just one editor. Other editors may feel very differently about this, but give me something to do. You know what I mean? Like I'm an editor. I don't expect everything to be totally perfect. Um, I don't mind if I see a little work for me to do, um, I guess there's sort of a fine line between feeling like you've left plenty for me to do. And, um, you know, when I see, when I get a submission and it has like a lot of errors in it, like typos and stuff, 
that to me feels quite disrespectful. Like you didn't bother to take the time um, to get this ready for me. So uh, this was a very roundabout <laughs> way of not totally answering the question because it's it's very case by case. I um, feel like for me, I'd rather have it be great than fast. Yeah. I also expect it to be as good as you can make it on your own. Yes. I don't actually expect people to pay editors or anything like that because I'm, you know, I edit things and my, and when I sell it to an editor, the editor will edit things. And there's a whole team of people working on your book once it's sold. So I don't expect you to have done all that work. How could you have? Well, and cause it's going to change anyway. I mean, right. if you go out and, and get something copy edited and, and invest money and then best case scenario, you get an agent and then the agent sells it, as you said, um, then the first thing I do when I get something is I write a long editorial letter and I say, change this and change that and change this. So, <laughs> you know, I think you would feel like maybe that wasn't money well spent right. if I'm having you like throw out whole chapters or totally revise them that had, you know, perfect grammar because you paid to get somebody to fix it. Right. Okay. So the and new question. So the internet, as we know, is a huge boon for writers. Social media is so important for authors. We all know. But also, the internet and social media are huge time sucks. They're horrible. They can derail a writing day completely. So mm. what advice do you have for limiting distractions and getting those words down? Yeah, I feel you. This is <laughs> absolutely, this is like the dilemma of so many people right now. And it's something that I focus on quite a lot in my book um, because I feel like the majority of writers that come to me for coaching and also a lot of the writers uh, and authors that I work with as an editor are struggling with this same question of like, all right, everybody's saying I need to be out there and be on social media and have a presence, but also it's taking so much time out of my, not just my time, but like my inner life, you know, and my ability to go inward and, and shut out those voices. So I think that it's really incumbent on all of us and not just writers and artists, but really everybody in a new way, unlike any other time in history, um, to get really good at creating boundaries. Um, and that's really hard to do, uh, but it's also really important and it's very, very good for us to have to work on. Um, so how, in practice to do that. I mean, there are a million different ways to do it. And as I said, I talk about it a ton in the book. Um, but I mean, I'll give you an example of uh, a coaching client who was really struggling with this, who I was working with. And um, she would like wake up in the morning. First thing she would do is grab her phone and check all her stuff. And then she'd be sitting in bed for like an hour um, because she would just be looking at all our social media and all that stuff. And when we talked about it, I was like, well, do you have to keep your bed next to your, or your phone next to your bed? <laughs> and she was like, Oh, I guess I don't. Um, but it's my alarm. Said, hey, I feel attacked by this. <laughs> <laughs> Literally an alarm clock is like $20. Like, <laughs> Dang it, Kendra. <laughs> probably get one for less. <laughs> um, we have come to, put like rely on those little phones for so many tasks. And I think that it just becomes like a really a psychological uh, issue 
when you have one object that you get so many things from, you know? So break out, you know, outsource a few of those tasks. Um, if you need to like get a little space from your phone. So could just keeping like paying attention, having awareness on what your habits are and just giving yourself permission, like, Hey, okay, I'm going to take a couple of days and do things differently. And you know what? If I hate it, I can go back. You can always go back. But I have a feeling that if you try experimenting with some of those habits, you might find, Oh, it's actually not that hard for me to not have my phone glued to my hand 24 hours a day. There's so much terrible stuff going on in the world and that it seems like, you know, a lot of us are watching the news a lot um, and writing does not seem that urgent compared to like calling senators or curling up in a ball and crying. So why is it important? Remind us. Absolutely. And, and I mean, doing that other stuff is also important calling senators doing you know what doing whatever it is that you feel taking action i think it's important to find the time for that and feeling your feelings is also really important to make space for whether that involves curling up in a ball and crying or you know however that may <laughs> express itself <laughs> um but writing it oh my god is absolutely important and, and people have been asking me this question a lot as i as i travel around the country and i would say without question it is so important what i would say to people out there your voice matters what you have to say matters especially if you're writing for young people um you know writing and art it's a way to convey the values that are important to you uh if you see things that you love being threatened in the world uh I can't think of a better way to champion those things than through your writing. Um, and, you know, I mean, we see writing changing the world all the time, certainly journalism um, and nonfiction writing, but also through fiction, the way that it wins hearts and minds, um, the way that it can kind of shine a light on parts of history that we haven't seen before. And, and by doing that sort of like illuminate um, stuff that's going on in the present um, the way that fantasy and science fiction especially can kind of bring attention to important issues in our society um, and just letting people know they're not alone. I mean, um, when you hear people talk about the books that they loved as children, um, and this is true for adult books too, but just like, you know, I really love children's books. Um, they talk about those books like the way they would talk about a very, very dear friend or a important mentor, somebody who really changed their life. Um, books really do change people's lives. They make people feel seen and heard. Um, and they create kind of all the language that we use to unpack and process and talk about and understand ourselves, each other, our world. Um, so, oh my God, please don't stop writing and please don't stop um, focusing on this work because it's so, so, so important. Thank you. That's really lovely. So now changing gears completely, it is self-promotion corner. Um, Kendra, do you have any forthcoming books from your list that you definitely want us to keep our eyes peeled for? Maybe something coming out this month or really soon. Sure. So um, I, I am very, very fortunate that I get to work on, lots of different kinds of books. So I'll tell you about two. Um, and they couldn't be more different from each other. Uh, 
Uh, one is a picture book that just came out very recently um, called The Lost Picnic by B.B. Cronin. And it's a very, very cool, beautiful kind of seek and find um, picture book uh, that's very cute and just artsy and neat. Uh, and then I've got a novel that I edited that's coming out uh, in a little bit. It's in March, but I really wanted to tell you about it now because I'm just really, really excited about it. Um, it's a debut novel called Orphan Monster Spy by Matt Killeen. Um, and it takes place uh, at the very beginning of World War II in Germany in 1939. And it's about this Jewish girl who winds up kind of going um, undercover as a spy in a Nazi boarding school. So it's like, yeah, super intense. It's like mean girls meets inglorious bastards. What? Um, I really love it. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) who's the agent? Molly Kerhan. Oh, I heard about this when you were buying it many, many months ago, maybe October of last year. Mm -hmm. Um, and it sounds amazing. I can't wait to read it. And you will send me a galley, I'm sure. I absolutely will do that. <laughs> yes. Um, and I will say really quickly that today is the release day. This is November 7th right now. It's election day. I hope everyone voted. Although I know that this won't actually air for a few more days. But um, this week <laughs> or soon, you can buy Joe Whittemore's Supergirl Age of Atlantis, which is... Um, Great for fans of Supergirl, the TV show, or just superhero kick-ass ladies in general. Um, it's really a delight. So look for Sounds it. Sounds awesome. And I, I have to say, I really love that super women are having such a moment right now. I think it's really, really cool. Yes. Um, Okay, so every time I ask my guests, what are you obsessed with this week? It does not have to be bookish, but it can be. And I will start. I'm obsessed with this show called Dix Pourcent. It is a French series that has been picked up by Netflix and retitled Call My Agent in English. (laughs) It is about the lives of four agents in Paris. In this case, they're not literary agents, but rather actors agents. So as you can imagine, there are lots of scandalous goings on. Uh, let's put it this way. There's probably not an HR department in this agency. Um, in the first season, the principal agent of the agency dies unexpectedly on holiday. He like swallows a bee and the remaining agents of the agency have to figure out what to do, whether they buy the agency themselves or get a, somebody to buy them or what. In season two, which just came to America and which I just started, the agency has been purchased by an eccentric billionaire who has some rather bizarre notions about how the agents should do their jobs. Uh, anyway, all the characters are so well-drawn and magnetic. It's very funny and generally delightful. And though, obviously, the particulars are not the same as my job, it's always really fun to see the juxtaposition of, like, business people dealing with glamorous artistic people. And I'm a sucker for behind-the-scenes movie and theater stories. And yes, it is all in French (laughs) with English subtitles. For the record, I took seven years of French in high school and college, and I still understand about 0.02% of the words, but it only took me about 10 minutes to be so sucked in that I forgot I was reading it instead of listening to it. So everyone should watch Call My Agent on Netflix. It sounds like an amazing show. And also, I feel like this was a great testament to what makes you a great agent, because I am, I'm 
so interested. Like I really, really <laughs> want to watch it. And that's one of the most important skills as an agent is to be good yes. at pitching. So you are definitely uh, good at that. <laughs> um, so Kendra, now what are you obsessed with this week? Okay. So <laughs> I, right now I'm obsessed with the same thing probably as everybody else that I work with. Um, Dr. Carla Hayden, the um, Librarian of Congress, just came to speak with us at Penguin Random House. And she was so cool. <laughs> like, she's amazing. She gave this great speech. Um, she talked all about kind of how she got to where she is and, um, you know, why books are important and why the Library of Congress is so cool. And I mean, again, it was a great pitch. She got me very interested in the Library of Congress and all the like crazy stuff that they have, which is much more than just books. She was talking about they have um, hair from Bach, the composer. Um, what? And like handprints from Amelia Earhart and like all of this crazy stuff uh, that just made me want to go to the Library of Congress and check it out. And um, the other thing that was really delightful about her is she was hilarious. Like, I, I don't know if there, I'm sure there are like videos of her speaking uh, on YouTube that people can find. Um, she's really funny. Like it was this really kind of like dry sense of humor that um, we were all laughing really a lot. Um, <laughs> so I definitely recommend Dr. Carla Hayden our librarian of Congress. She's really cool. And I think now probably everybody ran back to their office and was like, okay, how can I do a book with her? So <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, when is, when is the book coming? <laughs> uh, amazing. So we will all find Dr. Carla Hayden and make her talk to her. I mean, look her up on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Kendra, thank you so much for joining me. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. I, this has really, really been so much fun for me. And what a great show that you do. I love it. Thank you again, Kendra, so much for joining us. A copy of The Hero Is You by Kendra Levin will be given away to one of our Patreon supporters this month. Oh, yeah, we have a Patreon. If you like the podcast and would like to support it, consider throwing a buck in. You'll get early access to guests to ask questions, as well as the opportunity to potentially win books. That is at patreon.com slash literaticat. As always, I will include links about the books and other things we talked about in the show notes on the website. That's jenniferlawfriend.com slash literaticast. And please do reach out via Twitter or the Ask Agent Tumblr or Messenger Pigeon or... Patreon comments. If you have topics you'd especially like me to address here, I'm on Twitter at LiteratiCat. Kendra is on Twitter at Kendra Levin, one word. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. <laughs>